Hello, Austin. Welcome to episode 159 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It is, uh, Steve, I have no idea what day today is. I had to look at my watch. Turns out it's Saturday. Uh, today's the 21st of March. Um, in our house, this is day four, day four of home lockdown. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Your house, it looks like you're at the beach. <laughs> yes. Doesn't it look super realistically like I'm at the beach? So, so, so for those who are, Walk who are along the beach here. Um, for those who are listening, we're, we're trying something, uh, suffice it to say, experimental, which is we're recording this live via Zoom, even though I should point out, Bobby lives about seven houses that way. Um, but we're doing this, is this social distancing, Steve, we uh, get any closer than seven houses. We are modeling good behavior, both in not actually doing this in person and in using Zoom, which is about to take over. I think already has taken over your life. Um, uh, yes. But so we are, we are going to try to post this both as a regular audio file, the way that we usually do, but also for the real gluttons among you who always wonder just what we look like. Um, here we are. Oh, there's, and there's, hey. Bobby, there's Bobby's real background. Um, so this is actually going to be both a, a, an audio and video, double, uh, daily double, Bobby. Yes, what a, what a treat. Um, and and, I, and I, brought, I brought libations. Oh, what is that? Self-serving. Cherry. This is, nice. this is uh, you know, Bobby. Bobby, you, you missed me. You made me realize I left my coffee in the other room. I'm just going to walk away for a second. You keep talking. <laughs> Bobby missed the important yeah. part, which is that what I'm holding up is actually uh, Eastsiders' brand new spiked black cherry seltzer. So I came prepared for this podcast, which is more than I can say for certain associate deans I know who. Hey, right. what have you been saying about me while I was out of the room? Huh? I was just, po- I was just pointing out that this was a spiked black cherry seltzer so I, I came prepared oh yeah so that's a real drink oh yeah uh, i mean real latte. real in the sense that it actually has alcohol in it. i think there are plenty of people who would not actually agree that it's a real drink <laughs> that's true we'll, we'll qualify that but uh, i also i also dressed up for the show today as you can see yeah so the you have met's colors but i can't place the hat you so got the hat is the, the hat is the syracuse mets oh uh, okay triple a double a triple a very nice um, I, I was just reading about how sports pages, um, some newspapers are going to stop or reduce them to a single page in the back of the, the style section in one example. I think the Post maybe was doing that. Uh, one more technical point before we dive in. I should note that I actually am using a proper microphone and Bobby's not. So I'm going to sound great today and Bobby's going to sound terrible and, and I'm okay with that. Oh, come on. <clears throat> let, let me try to speak more resonantly to make up for the poor microphone quality. At least, listen, I'll t- you, you do the poor audio quality and I do the poor substance. It works out. It, it evens out. <laughs> Excellent. Um, what are we going to talk about, Steve? Uh, is there anything going on? In, in some senses, in some senses, no. Uh, so obviously, we'll maybe survey pandemic land. Um, I listened to the fantastic episode of Lawfare Podcast that you and Ben Wittes did, I think, just two days ago. Yeah. Two whole days ago. Maybe it was Wednesday night. I don't know. Yeah. So let me, the first thing I want to do is plug that episode because it's really good. It's a nice kind of slow paced systematic run through of of pandemic issues. We'll probably recap some of that here, I would imagine, but I don't want to, I don't want to duplicate that conversation too much. And, and there's a live show coming. Oh, right. You, you guys are doing a Zoom. Is it a Zoom call-in or what? It is, a, it is a Zoom. So Monday night at 8.30 Eastern, you know, because we are all subject to the hegemony of Eastern time, even though we're both in Central time. I resist. 
Um, so Monday night at 8, at 8.30, Lawfare is hosting a live 90-minute Zoom webinar with Ben and me sort of talking about some of these issues. And also, I guess we're taking questions. We'll see how that goes. Are you guys prepared to protect yourself against the new phenomenon, the new scourge of Zoom bombing? Uh, is that when people randomly show up for Zoom conferences to which they weren't invited? It's not so much that they randomly show up. It's what they do once they're in. If you've left it open and the, and the host has not uh, controlled to prevent people from sharing their screen, mm. uh, you can imagine the misbehavior. But there was a story, I, I forget where I saw it, about the, this phenomenon where uh, some, uh, some public Zoom sessions have, have been taking place where people within minutes uh-oh, what's happening here? <laughs> exactly. You just Zoom bombed us. That is not as um, colorful as some of the Zoom bombing that's been taking place. So word to the wise, protect yourself. Well, I'm not in charge, so hopefully they've thought of that. Yeah, I suspect Ben's all over it. Ben's, Ben's very high tech. He's yes. very high tech. All right, so uh, we'll do a little bit of pandemic stuff. You also want to talk about the weird thing that happened, didn't happen Sunday, but then happened Monday with FISA. Um, I just wanted to say I called it. Um, yeah. We're so gonna talk, we're gonna talk, yeah. We'll talk about the, the current expiration of, of FISA and this, the resulting standoff, and that might be all we say. Um, and uh, anything else you want to talk about? How about the courts and the way the courts in general are, are grappling with uh, the, the great slowdown is not strong enough, the great lockdown or whatever it is we're going to end up calling this uh, experience. Um, and, and why I'm not actually arguing a Supreme Court case Monday morning. That's right. Yeah, I'm actually kind of curious to know, like, so what, when, when will you argue it? And what will it look like? Will it be a perfect Brady Bunch set of nine squares with the justices? Um, will you be like Alice sort of in the middle, kind of turning and waving, looking at the different, like, when you're, when you're doing a checkerboard Zoom gallery view uh, oral argument to the Supreme Court, do you have to sort of figure out which direction the question justice is and kind of look up there and be like, well, Justice Kate, oh, hold on. Justice Thomas, you know, you kind of bounce around like that, I guess. There, there's a really funny thread that I think uh, Sean Murata, who's a partner at um, Hogan, did um, at some point when Karen was making fun of me for my argument about what it would be like if you actually had like a conference call argument with the justices and basically all of the worst conference call tropes, but played through particular justices. <laughs> I would love to see that. It was I can good. Imagine. Um, all right, well, let's dive in. Oh, and of course, what frivolity uh, will we engage in? We've got two episodes of Picard uh, since last we talked, so we must, uh, we must go deep on that. And then Steve, for the, for the listener-only audience, Steve's infuriated because I have not yet watched episode one of Westworld. And I think the only reason he wanted to have the episode today was to get to that. And I've, yep, there's some nodding. And so I've deprived him of that. Um, but you know what? We've got a lot of Time ahead. I suspect he's 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 Darth Vader. Air. He's joking. So that was more. This is more a Reggie Miller choke. Oh, Reggie Miller choke. <laughs> oh man. Um, all right. So, what do you want to dive in with first? You want to do the Pfizer real quick? Uh, sure. I mean, why don't we actually do non-pandemic stuff first, and then we'll we'll use what what time and energy we have left on what the sort of the most obvious things are to say about where we are with with pandemic land. Okay. All right. So the the Pfizer story is short and sweet. Uh, the expiration came and it went and they did not pass legislation. And uh, I blame the president for this. So I want to pin the rose very squarely. Uh, Donald Trump. I think that's going to be a recurring theme of today's episode. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the whole series, uh, from a certain point of view. 
uh, it, there was a deal struck. It was not necessarily going to be good enough to get all the different parties. And there's there's splits within both political parties as to how they feel about clean renewal versus renewal with uh, sort of the patina of change that the, the main house vehicle uh, was was offering, which was a pretty good deal. And I think even even a lot of folks like listening to Stuart Baker on his podcast saying like, you know, this was this is something we could live with. Um, the deal gets scuttled because Trump tweets about it, sort of waving the uh, the Carter Page story around as if that has anything to do with the three provisions expiring or the 3.5s, as I like to call it. Let's just recap. Uh, lone wolf authority so that foreign intelligence wiretapping could follow the model of ordinary criminal law enforcement wiretapping. When you have someone who's cycling through addresses really quickly in an effort to defeat surveillance, you don't have to keep going back and get a separate warrant application filed each time. You can have the warrant be for that person, whichever device they're cycling through. Um, so that's been taken off the table now, and that's that's now gone until it gets reenacted. Um, the sorry, that's roving wiretaps. Lone wolf is the definition of agent of a foreign power that enables uh, the basic FISA standard for showing that there's probable cause to believe your target is an agent of a foreign power or is representative of a foreign power. Um, to have that apply in a situation where there's an international terrorism context, they are a foreign person, but you can't figure out which specific named foreign group actually is the one, if any, that they might be affiliated with. So that's gone too, great. Um, and then Section 215, um, call, rec call records, but also any other business records, it's gone, in, it's gone back to its 1998 version, which means that um, when you have a Section 215 application to request with FISA court approval, um, the production of records from any, any private entity, sort of third-party production of documents is basically what this is, um, you can only use that for car rentals and truck rentals, uh, play, things like um, storage locker rentals, and a handful of other very kind of 1990s uh, investigation-specific uh, targets. You can't use it just generally with respect to any business, let alone for call detail records, let alone the complex apparatus currently governed or was currently governed by the USA Freedom Act in which the, the phone companies have to hold onto records in bulk for a while and the government can come back and query for them. Um, all that's wiped away and not just the call detail record stuff. Um, it's, I find that part really inexcusable. Now, if it's all just turned off for a week or so, you could say uh, probably little harm done. Maybe we'll get lucky and none of those authorities turn out to be particularly sensitive or that, that uh, critical during this interregnum period. Um, but maybe not. And also, it's not clear when this is going to get fixed. There is a, I guess there's a Senate bill, right? Right. There's a Senate bill that's just a straight renewal of this of what had been the status quo for like 75 days. Yeah, yeah. So to punt it until calmer times, but it's not clear that that's going to go anywhere either. Um, so right now, of course, Congress is is to the extent they're paying attention to anything, they're paying attention, of course, to the pandemic topic. Um, we'll see. Maybe we just don't get to have these authorities again. Um, I will say that as someone who, who is a supporter of using sunsets, um, it is an example of how, as we saw maybe with uh, some budget deficit, uh, deficit reduction stuff from a few years back, sometimes the, the bluff effect, call your bluff effect of a sunset, um, sometimes somebody calls the bluff and you're left without the authority at all. Instead of a written dialogue about how to tweak it, 
you just lose the authorities. And that's, that's where we are right now. So I'll just say as, 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 a, as a similarly a defender of sunsets, and one could make the point that if it had been important enough to Congress, they would have found a way as opposed to leaving it on the books. But, you know, I, I certainly agree this is not exactly the pinnacle of responsibility. Um, no, I, I just don't think that importance, I think the merits don't hardly enter into it, as exemplified by the way that the president sabotaged this. And let's be clear, the Republican president sabotaged and caused the expiration of, uh, of a variety of with a limited exception, uncontroversial foreign intelligence gathering authorities. Of course, that's no real surprise when you think about this particular president being entirely committed to a program of uh, disempowering and deconstructing uh, the intelligence community, which is increasingly part of his program. So we should add, so on that note, I mean, we should also note something that didn't get a lot of attention because nothing was getting a lot of attention. And Roxy, who's barking in the background, is trying to participate. Um, the president also apparently fired the head of the National Counterterrorism Center. So, um, or at least the acting DNI Grinnell did. Um, so lots um, of well, so, so for, there's two positions I know were in play, right? So you had the, uh, the, the I think the NCTC directorship, when Joe McGuire became the acting DNI, it was never clear had he vacated, had he formally vacated the position of being NCTC director. But the acting director, right? Um, right, the acting director had become, I thought, so Russ I, Travers, right? Right, but was, was, was he acting director of NCTC? Is that what was going on? Yeah, so Russ had become the acting head of NCTC. So Joe McGuire had moved over to DNI's office, and we all know how that ended. Indeed. And by the way, Joe McGuire is, is party to this uh, multi-author statement warning the country that the president, Joe McGuire, who was, who was right in there until recently, telling the country that the president is systematically removing all the career people and disempowering the agency and in effect you know, undermining the intelligence agency to the detriment of the country's security. Hello, these are blinking red type statements. Kind of like the intelligence briefing he got in January about the threat of the pandemic. Exactly. Well, we'll get to that. The deep state department. Yeah. <laughs> Let me do my Dr. Fauci. Is that, that pretty much the, the move? Um, so Russ Travers was, was fired by Grinnell um, from his position. Now it's perfectly within the authority of the administration to decide who they want to nominate. And the person they've nominated, whose name is escaping me right now, maybe you'll pull it up while we're talking. Um, I've heard lots of good things about this being a very, uh, Adam, here's the problem with uh, doing this with the video. Now people can see when we're- Flailing uh, about trying to figure out who everybody is. There we are. Uh, well, keep talking. Yeah, yeah. Okay, anyways, I really wanna get the name of the guy. Um, oh well, you dig it up. Um, I've heard lots of good things from people who are in the know saying like, this is a serious professional. So that, that much is good news. Um, but there are so many, there are so many of these fires. It's hard to keep track. Right, it's not easy to look up. So Chris Miller is the acting now head of NCTC. Um, but who is the permanent nominee? I haven't even, no, I, I think, isn't that, uh, not who they, they appointed Chris Miller. Yeah. All right, all right, we're we're killing our we're killing our listeners here with our, our fumblings online. Let's uh, move along to stuff we know about. All this is, but all this is to say that, like, I mean, this is. So can I just tie in one more piece of news before we get to pandemic land? Yeah. 
So this is also part of why I think there's a lot of um, the, the whole sort of Senator Burr um, uh, stock purchase question or stock selling question, right? This thing that came out like Thursday night or Friday night. Um, I think part of why we've seen the White House be especially active, right, is because I think Burr is perceived in at least some circles on the right in his capacity as, you know, chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee um, as yet a further obstacle to the president's sort of dominance of the intelligence community. So, you know, I think there are, there's obviously a lot of reasons why everyone should be worried about whether members of Congress are getting rich off of inside information. But in Burr's case, I think part of why people rush, people on the right rush to the sort of anti-Burr bandwagon was because of the same sort of concern, the same larger story. Uh, there's no question, for, for those who don't follow it, in, in MAGA land, there were a lot of people joyfully calling for Richard Burr's head. Um, he's always been deeply unpopular because he tells the truth about Russian interference in the 2000s. And, and though I know he may not be all that popular uh, with you, Steve, uh, I think on the whole, he's done a, a very fine job as far as it goes, especially in, in, in Mark Warner partnering and showing bipartisan for the Senate Intelligence Committee in its uh, series of publications now about Russian election interference. So there, there's definitely a crowd taken down and they're hoping to exploit this. Um, the abstract topic of members of Congress trading stock, my, my first reaction to hearing the story was, wait, those guys don't have to have their stocks in blind trust? I can't believe that that's not already a rule that you, yeah, you know, we expect in positions of privileged power, inside information. I kind of can't believe they're allowed to trade stock directly. I like the president of the United States. No, right, exactly. And I think it's all ridiculous. It's all, please add this to the list of good government rules we need to entrench in uh, statutes. Um, that said, I, I have not done the due diligence to dig into exactly what his full slate of public statements are. But I do have some sense that it wasn't like Burr was out there publicly I know some people say Burr was out there publicly telling a story that was, hey, this is serious, but we're not sure how serious. And then privately was saying, actually, the secret scoop is it's super serious. Um, I'm not sure how fulsome that record is. I'd like to know more about whether he really was telling a different story publicly than he was uh, saying internally. At least one person argued to me online saying that, um, no, he had an op-ed in the papers around the same time that was publicly touting the dangers. Um, so, so I kind of, I'm still holding back on forming my own opinion on exactly yeah. how fair he was being. Um, I do dislike the idea, this realization I now have, that members of Congress are in any position to trade stocks. Well, so, right. So, I mean, to me, the, 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 the clear upshot here is that there should be a sweeping investigation by the Senate Ethics Committee because... You know, I don't, I'm not willing to say that there was wrongdoing based on what's in the record so far, but certainly yeah. there's, there's enough there that I'd like to at least, and, and to his credit, Burr, you know, Burr came right out and said, you know, I'm asking the Senate Ethics Committee to, yeah. to look at, so, so, yeah, yeah yes to all of that. Yeah, yeah, okay, good. Um, all right, so uh, I'm going to transition. Let's have a different background. That's a little distracting, isn't it? A little bit. Distracting? So if you're not watching, Bobby is now uh, uh, in front of the Aurora Borealis. It could be Southern. Oh, true. Okay. No, no, look at the trees. That must be Northern, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right, here, I'll switch to grass. No, that's really distracting. Okay. <laughs>
Let's talk now. I'm oh, Bob, Bob, Bob is in Space Force now. I'm in Space Force now. <laughs> oh, man. Beat me up. Um, let's talk about the pandemic situation. Um, one area where, I, I like you, I've been getting lots of calls about uh, what is it the president might do that we should be wary of. And this is such a difficult topic because given the, the profound lack of trust the president tends to inspire, there's a desire here, I think, and very reasonable desire to identify as many limitations and to construe narrowly the president's authorities. But the reality is we have a, a real life fact pattern in front of us that, that does call for generous interpretation of authorities. To an, actual, an actual emergency. Yeah, it's an actual emergency. I'm like, this is, you know, it's a boy who cried wolf scenario where now the wolf is here. Um, so I think we all have to just, what the upshot of that is we should all be thinking about when we're construing various authorities, trying our best to imagine if it wasn't Trump, what would we probably say the authority in this context is best understood to be? Mindful that if it's a broad authority, there's a chance it's going to be abused. Um, I mean, so that, I mean, said, the, that said, the main problem so far is not um, overextensions. It's that the president has famously or infamously, and his history will judge him, I think, very harshly for this, and rightly so, uh, infamously has tried to downplay the danger uh, and continues to try to downplay the danger. And the, and the concrete manifestation of that isn't just the, the crazy things he's saying in these press conferences. It's the uh, failure to actually use the authorities he's got, uh, which he still isn't using, although he's progressed from denying and not at all invoking them to naming and referencing them but not actually doing anything concrete with them. Right. I mean, I think this is the most important point that came out of my conversation with Ben. And I think this is something that, you know, is going to strike a lot of people as counterintuitive, but I think is, is undeniable if you unpack it properly, which is that it is entirely because Trump has actually been dilatory in exercising the authorities that are committed to him in a time like this, that, chances are the government's going to have to be even more aggressive and exercise even greater and more oppressive authorities um, in the coming days and weeks because the crisis is going to become harder and harder to manage on a local level. And so to put meat on that bone, I mean, let's just talk about the Defense Production Act. I mean, this has been, you know, a big one this week. Um, the president went on, you know, part, during his press conference on, what, Thursday, he made a, or Wednesday, I can't even keep track of the days anymore. He made this big deal about how he was invoking the Defense Production Act. He said, I, he said, I signed it. I'm like, no, you didn't. Harry Truman signed it. Um, <laughs> signed, he, he meant the executive order, uh, an executive order. Well, but so this is the thing. So, so in Trump land, it's like, oh, look, the president's doing so much. He's invoking, you know, he signed a new law, which he didn't. And then, all right, well, he signed an executive order. Sure. But guys, the Defense Production Act, I mean, the way to think about this is like, if it's a gun, the executive order the president signs is just taking the safety off. You still have to pull the trigger. And right. there's no evidence, Bobby, that I've seen that in the three days since Trump did this, any of the triggers under the statute, which are designed for exactly this kind of problem, when there's a shortage that is causing a national security crisis and you need private industry to come on board, you know, the government can be more aggressive in either um, uh, bribing or ultimately coercing private industry. And I haven't seen any indication that they've done that since the president signed the executive order. This is the critical thing. So let me put stop what you just said. Uh, issuing an executive order uh, 
invoking the DPA, all that it does, it's like walking into a room and turning on a light switch. It doesn't mean you've gone into the room and done anything. He's, 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 he's activated the possibility of government intervention, but here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn my screen, uh, I can navigate, I've got a lot of screens going here. Let me go back to here. So, I know nobody can probably read, that's not readable at all, never mind. <laughs> Experiment failed. Um, actually, you know what, I can screen share, can't I? Yeah. No. Uh-oh, Bobby's gonna try to share the text of the DPA. Let's try it. Let's try it. Share. This is going to work really well for the people who are listening on audio. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm going to read from it as well. Okay. Did that work? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Uh, I am. It, although it's a little, it's, it's, the font is small. All right. Never mind. This is can, you, can, you, can you increase the font? Um, what tabs does Bobby have open? I know. Lots of stuff. Okay. Uh, if it's not readable, never mind. This is <laughs> Um, the executive order uh, finds that, yeah, I'm going to read from it, I find that health and medical resources needed to respond to the spread of COVID-19, including personal protective equipment and ventilators. Those are the two big things. Uh, they meet the criteria specified, blah, 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 in the act. Uh, under the delegation of authority provided in this order, the Secretary of Health and Human Services may identify specific, additional specific health and medical resources that meet the criteria Section 101B. So he's identified the right categories, personal protective equipment and ventilators. Those are like the two big things that we need. We needed a month and a half ago, vast surges of production uh, domestically of all these things, some way, somehow. We needed a moonshot. We needed a Manhattan Project. We needed a stop everything and just do this type of intervention funded by the federal government and driven through through the compulsory authorities of this act. But there's no actual directive in this executive order, which really just delegates to Secretary Azar at Health and Human Services, authority to determine what to actually do next, to study it. There's no actual action yet. And every day that goes by, we continue to, to mount the curve, we continue to go up. And yes, there are a lot of existing efforts underway to surge production, some heroic stuff being done voluntarily in the private sector. But what we still don't have is the big announcement that we are taking, we, the U.S. government, are taking the following specific actions under the Defense Production Act. We are directing these named entities to take these specific steps at this scale by this date with this money behind it. None of that's happening, or at least if it is happening, it sure doesn't seem to be uh, happening in any public way. What, what happened instead was a talking point. Uh, and, and that's what we're seeing. I just want to say, so there's just a story on Twitter from Tim Mack for Politico that the Justice Department has quietly asked Congress for the ability to ask chief judges to detain people indefinitely without trial during emergencies, part of a push for new powers that comes as the coronavirus spreads. And all I have to say to that Tell is... Tell me about that. Well, I want to look this up while we're uh, talking. It's Politico. It's Tim Mack at Tim K. Mack on Twitter. Um, and my basic reaction to this is the government already has the power to detain individuals who are infected with COVID-19 under the Public Health Service Act, under 42 CFR 70.6A. So, you know, this goes back to like, why are we having conversations about authorities the government needs when it's not even using the powers it has, whether under the Defense Production Act, whether under the Stafford Act, whether under the Public Health Service Act. I mean, I just, 
there's something really strange about the legal conversation we're having, Bobby, where it's like all the government's interested in is looking like they're doing stuff without actually pulling the trigger on any of these powers. And I just, I don't get it. I'm uh, looking at this story. So the story to which Tim linked is by Betsy Woodruff Swan in Politico. Looks like this dropped. 20 minutes ago. 30 minutes ago, yeah. Let's, let's go at this. This sounds very interesting. Uh, documents reviewed by Politico detailed the departments, the Justice Department's request to lawmakers on a host of topics, including statutes of limitations, asylum, the way court hearings are conducted right up your alley, um, some deadlines on merger reviews being extended and so forth. This is all about extending deadlines. It sounds like they're making a lot of sensible requests, but then there's this exciting moment where they say, um, where is the details? Where's the, where's the beef? The DOJ request spans several stages of the legal process from initial arrest to how cases are processed and investigated. So when I see that sentence, I think that sounds like adjusting ordinary yep. justice procedures to allow for the delays that are now going to be inevitable. Yep. Um, but in one of the documents, quote, the, doc the department proposed that Congress grant the attorney general power to ask the chief judge of any district to pause court proceedings, to pause court proceedings, Whenever the district court is fully or partially closed by virtue of natural disaster, civil disobedience, or emergency, okay, going on. More about this. Pause court proceedings, including habeas? If you're listening at home, this is, this is Bobby and me live parsing a news story on our podcast. Yeah. Still looking for the part that sounds like some kind of grant of detention authority. Okay, the quote, the request raised eyebrows because of its potential implications for habeas corpus. Um, there's some quotes here about, hey, this means like they might pause you. Um, if that's all that's going on here, I thought it was from the headline that the suggestion was going to be that they were asking for a grant of a an right, new detention authority. That's the way it's framed. I get it that if there is no habeas, then as long as you're able to persuade some of the people that work for you to go out and arrest somebody and hold them, which is, you know, let's assume that that could be done. It's, it's sort of a, uh, a backdoor way of achieving a, a generic or arbitrary detention authority. I get that. That said, if what the legislation is saying is there may be circumstances where the courts can't operate because we are in a, we're in the thick of the, the most quarantined aspects of pandemic, we got to be careful on how we tailor this, but that doesn't sound like some crazy power grab to me. That sounds like they're trying to, trying to deal effectively with the practical consequences of being in full lockdown. Now, what I'd like to see and hope they would consider is maximizing the use of appearances via video in, in Zoom proceedings like this podcast. Hello. And being open to doing process that way, above all in habeas cases, in case that's an issue. But this doesn't, at least until, until we see more, I'd like to actually see the underlying document. It doesn't look like they linked to it. Yeah, I mean, I think, but so to get back to, so I mean, this will, hopefully the story will develop. I do think though, we shouldn't lose sight of the broader point, which is whatever this proposal is, like what has been, I think the dominant legal theme of the government's, of the federal government's response so far has been an odd combination of bravado, um, blaming the messenger and then timidity when it comes to the actual, you know, Bobby, we haven't seen any uses of quarantine authority under 70.6. We haven't seen 
you know, any specific Defense Production Act um, demand. Wait, which, one's, which one is 70.6? Is that uh, border quarantine or are you talking about inter- interstate? So, well, so I would say there's, there's two issues pulling in opposite directions here. There, I, you and I share a critique that there's a, uh, a gross dereliction of duty taking place and the failure to use federal authorities in, in affirmative and aggressive ways that involves surging resources to our, our healthcare system. I think we are totally on the same page about that. Um, I'm curious whether we're on the same page. I don't see any problems with failure to more aggressively use federal quarantine law. Are you suggesting that that, that is something we should be seeing more of? Or No, no, what, what, I'm suggesting, what I'm suggesting is that if things were, so what I'm suggesting is that the federal government historically has left a lot of this stuff to local and state governments, not because it lacks the legal authorities to act aggressively, but because for various reasons of both politics and good sense, right? Many of the federal authorities are far broader, far more coercive, far less tailored to the sort of case-specific patterns in particular jurisdictions. And all I'm saying is that here we have a national public health crisis, the likes of which we haven't seen for as long as these authorities have been on the books. I mean, right, the Spanish flu predates the public health predates these authorities, yeah. And so, you know, it seems to me that um, for, there's a political story about all of the things the Trump administration failed to do between January and March, right? And all of the steps that weren't taken once, for example, Secretary Azar declared a national public health emergency on January 31st. And that's an important story. It's a story about accountability and get all of that. But there's also a story about, all right, let's just, you know, put that into column A, and let's go into column B and talk about what exactly the federal government can and should be doing now. And it seems like that is a separate failure, that there's a lot of bluster coming from the White House, but so far as I can see, very little action. And I'm not saying that a quarantine of any kind is the appropriate action. I think we don't have anywhere near a sufficient either diagnostic or surveillance testing regime to actually make that effective. My point yeah, is- let's talk about that. That's, in that one is- sec, but, but, it's, but, it's it. but there's nothing. Like there's, there's, you know, I've signed an executive order in the DPA, but not actually done anything. Like, you know, I mean, where, where is the concrete action besides, so we're seeing concrete actions like at the border, right? We close the border to Canada, close the border to Mexico, stop letting anyone apply for asylum. Where are the concrete industrial actions to actually improve access and improve supply for things that, by all accounts, are in very low supply in certain parts of the country? Yeah, I can, look, I think the single biggest and obvious area of federal failure beyond the symbolic levels, uh, which are you know, horrific, at, at the head of state role level, there's gross failures. The, the failure to do what the federal government can do to surge the production of resources is I think the single biggest problem. And let me let me underscore that by emphasizing what exactly turn uh, is. Let me emphasize what I think is most harmed by that. The the national goal, the reason for which we are we are gutting our economy across the nation right now is to flatten the curve. It, flatten the curve is relative to a target, right? The more resources you have for personal protective equipment, ICU capacity, ventilators, etc the higher the target can be set and the less flattening necessary to achieve success. Right. The two input process, everyone's only really talking publicly about, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the demand side, if you will. And, and that's critical, especially where not enough is happening on the supply side. 
but you can address the problem ideally by, by pushing on both dimensions at once, get as many people locking things down as possible, but in the meantime, surging production. And if you'd done it in advance and there was ample reason to know that it needed to be done, this was no surprise. So that's, that's the potential failure. Now, on these other areas of potential federal role, there's, there's the potential federal role on that, um, that demand side where if the localities aren't doing enough to lock people down or people themselves aren't doing enough to lock themselves down, you could have the federal government come in with individualized quarantine efforts or potentially, as they've hinted at various times, uh, travel constraints, perhaps sealing off areas. Um, I don't see the case for that needing to actually have been done, and it makes me very worried. That's the area where the administration, in theory, could cause the, cause the most mayhem uh, and give rise to the most conspiracy theorizing if it's done anywhere near elections. Um, and it seems like the states are all being pretty aggressive. Some places they should be, but increasingly getting more aggressive. Illinois, California, New York, um, all taking aggressive measures recently. Uh, here in Texas, we've got you know, we've got lockdown orders that are not as comprehensive as uh, those three I just mentioned, but it's close and it's getting, it'll, it'll get there too here. So I'm not worried about the lack of federal act action there, but you raised a minute ago a, a third category. So we've got surging resources, locking people in, in economic life down and social life down. And then there's testing and tracking. And I'm glad you put it that way because it's really, it's not just, if it was just testing full stop, that'd be part of resource surging. It's an important part of resource surging, but, but tracking and testing is part of this more targeted approach that's often referred to as the suppression strategy. Strategy, It's the sort of thing that enables us potentially down the road, if we could ever get there, to be more targeted. And you explained this really nicely in your Lawfare podcast interview with Ben. Um, in an ideal world, we'd have such comprehensive and readily available testing we could afford to allow a little bit less lockdown of everyone because we would be so on top of detection, um, not waiting, not having to wait till people are obviously uh, symptomatic to be able to constantly test and able to control spread that way. Um, we show zero sign of getting anywhere near that. Right. It's interesting if we do start to go near that and start to embrace that strategy more, um, there will be an interesting question about surveillance and the role of uh, accessing geolocation data, call records, movement records, especially movement records, to try to figure out who was around whom when post hoc after you've discovered that somebody's infected. Um, there's been lots of talk about what Israel's been doing in this respect. Um, what is your thought on what would be the right policy for the U.S.? I mean, it's so capability-driven, Bobby. I mean, I think the, you know, the first question is, can we get to a point where there is widespread access to testing? And then if so, like, could we do some kind of system where, you know, you are allowed, where we're relaxing sort of, um, you know, stay home orders and travel restrictions for folks who can show that they have been successfully tested in the last, say, 24 to 48 hours, right? Like, I mean, I think, you know, not to borrow from fiction, but in contagion, right, they get these, they get these bracelets. Um, once they've had the vaccine. Now, that's a separate matter, right? Because then once you've been vaccinated, in theory, you're no longer even subject to, conf to infection. But it seems to me that, I mean, there's one town in Italy, the name I don't remember, that did a crazy aggressive testing regime. And once it had tested everybody and had procedures in place for retesting, was able to isolate those who tested positive and was able to relax 
some of the social distancing and stay-at-home measures. And so a green zone, a green zone approach. Basically. I mean, I just, you know, I just think that there are so many, I don't know what the best answer is, Bobby. Um, I'll tell you what the two worst answers are. The two worst answer, number one, um, comes from a, a local congressman who wrote a piece in the National Review yesterday saying that we should just pick a day. And after that day, everything's going back to normal. Um, and he said, like D-Day. The enemy, the enemy gets a vote in that, unfortunately. And the enemy well, but, virus. but the other thing I was going to say was, like, if we're, if we're really going to take up this stupid analogy to World War II, like, D-Day is the wrong one. It's VE Day. And we didn't know VE Day was VE Day until, like, the day before VE Day. So, you know, that's a, but, but leaving that aside, um, it, the larger problem is all of the good, all of the debate about how to relax these restrictions and about how to start trying to let people get some semblance of normalcy back into their lives depends upon capacities that, so far as I understand, we're not even close to having at the moment. And so they're just academic debates where we're all gonna be locked in our, not locked, but like we're all gonna be asked to sort of stay home and stay out of you know, social gatherings um, for so long as not the virus persists, but so long as we have no mechanism of actually tracking its progression within populations. Um, I'm trying to think of how it would work if uh, we got to a situation in which it was thought as a matter of public health advisable, and it's not hard to imagine this, that each time you did identify a person as having uh, become infected, whether they're symptomatic or not, um, of then rolling back from that point in time, making some sort of reasonable scientifically based estimate of how long they likely were infectious, and of course, the, the standard uh, technique would be to ask them, okay, let's, let's interview you and find out where have you been, who are you around, um, recollections imperfect. Is there a case to be made for going to the cell phone provider and trying to collect information about that person's movements and then cross collating that against the movement of others to try to determine who else might need a notification, who ought to get a text message saying, I just, I, my, my fear about that is that it's, it's so massively overbroad because if, if CDC's guidance is right, that six feet is the minimum safe distance to avoid the potential for physical transmission, right? The, the fact that my cell phone and your cell phone put us in the same rough area. At yeah, the it's not granular time, enough to tell you. It doesn't, it, it actually can't, I, my understanding of the technology is it can't actually tell us whether we were within six feet of each other or whether we were within a hundred feet of each other. What if, okay, that's a good point. So what if instead the, let's say this sort of call detail records, I mean, this is a lot, it looks a lot like the uh, USA Freedom Act slash, you know, bulk metadata kind of program with obviously a different action taken on the back end. What if the action taken was for each person who satisfies some sort of test that we recognize is going to be way over-inclusive, therefore the message, it's not that the government shows up and quarantines you. And it's not that you get a message saying you need to self-isolate for 14 days now or, or whatever. Um, what if instead it says uh, this message is to notify you that uh, the following individual has on this date tested positive and take, take action appropriate bearing in mind that unless you were within six feet, you don't necessarily or touch something they touched. What if it was purely just informational without being heavy handed? That might be useful. I mean, I can think of circumstances where there's somebody who I was around who, if, if I knew that person tested positive today, that, would, that might impact my behavior, although we're kind of locked down here at the house anyways, but it might impact my behavior. 
might keep me from going to the grocery store later today, for example. But I'd be able to know if I got tipped off that John Doe uh, tested positive, and I could think about, well, wait a minute, I was in the room with that person, yes, but it was this huge room, and they were across the room from me, and I didn't touch the doors or anything, so I'm not going to change my behavior in light of that. I mean, I have, I have a series of problems with this. I mean, the first is you'd have to amend HIPAA um, because what you're proposing is illegal. Um, but the second is, I mean, I just, you know. I think that that isn't that overridden in, or can be overridden in light of the Stafford Act declaration. Doesn't that unleash? There's, I think there's a technical question about overrides. exactly what, about, I think there are HIPAA overrides in Stafford, but I don't know that they would extend quite as far as that. But yeah. putting that to the side, um, I'm, you know, we have plenty of examples in our in our family, and I'm sure you do as well, of emails from folks who have told us, like, you know, hey, you know, my, you know, coworkers, um, cousins, oh, yeah. they, you know, tested positive, and so we're self quarantined. Like, you know, my hope is that people would actually do most of this themselves, and that the technology would actually complicate matters because it would create a lot of false positives. But leaving that aside, you know, this is all a pipe dream until we actually have a meaningful testing regime because all we're doing now is speculating. Like the right thing to do, if you found out that you were in a meeting five days ago with someone who has now tested positive, right? The right thing to do is for you to get tested. <laughs> um, and you know, in almost every jurisdiction, there's not yet enough availability of tests where people who are asymptomatic can walk in and get a test solely by dint of potential prior exposure. And the, so, absence of a the absence of a test option doesn't mean that I therefore wouldn't take any action. Of if course. Responsible, I, if, especially if I knew from my memory that I was close to that person, we actually both sat at the same table by each other, I would self-isolate to a greater extent than we're already self-isolated. I agree with that, but Bobby, would you self-isolate to the same extent if you knew you were negative? Uh, no, it'd be, it'd be better, obviously, to have it your way where there, there is testing. But I think there's still some value. I'm not saying that we clearly must do this, but I think it's interesting to ponder whether this would be helpful if there was the <clears throat> surveillance mechanism. I mean, so, so let me put it this way. I think it would be, it would not be not helpful. I think it would also be harmful. And I'm not sure, you know, weighing the harms and the, weighing the costs and the benefits, I think, is really complicated. And the, I, harm, the harm, just I want to make sure, the yeah, harm is yeah. what? Just overflow of information that might not have enough. And privacy. I mean, right. And also sort of setting this, you know, setting a precedent that like in there are circumstances where information that we used to think of as at least to some degree protected, right? I mean, the, you know, Carpenter says historical cell site information is at least to some degree protected by the Fourth yeah. Amendment. Um, you know, I just, I, I, I know there are, I know there are work right, around protection, for that. I, uh, I think I, I was hoping to find something where we might disagree a little bit. I think maybe we disagree about the extent to which we both agree that the privacy considerations are real and important. I suspect you were, you were weighing them in this context more than I'm probably weighing them. Mm -hmm. I'm much more willing in the interest of doing things that are genuinely tailored to fighting COVID-19. I think I'm much more willing to override those concerns. Would, would happily see HIPAA overridden uh, in specific respects that were well tailored to ensuring a better fight against the spread of the, the illness. I think all this is to say, though, that we are now coming up with third best solutions and fourth best solutions because of just utterly inexcusable failures on the part of the federal government to use the two months between, you know, when the, when the sort of the first warning signs emerged from China and when there were, you know, a critical mass of reported cases here to do anything at all.
I mean, I, on that we can certainly agree. It's this idea that it wasn't foreseeable is ridiculous. It it, it doesn't that doesn't pass the laugh. I mean, it was foreseeable in at least four different respects. It was foreseeable one as a result of the tabletop exercise they did just last year, right? It was foreseeable two just looking at China. It was foreseeable three looking at Italy, and it was foreseeable four once you actually even looked at our own resources and realized that we had no mechanism for containing this once it got here. Like the, you know, Trump wants to make a big deal out of like the one thing he did in January, which was to limit some flights from China. But you know, that was just such a, in retrospect, like half-assed half measure. Um, that the notion that like that proves that he was tackling this aggressively when nothing else was done in that interim period. I would have thought, Bobby, that even for someone who was previously a supporter of a president like that, that would render that person unelectable. But, you know, uh, if you look at the sort of the Trump supporter land, you know, it's, he's doing a, this is the best response we've ever seen in American history. He's doing everything right. I don't know that there's I don't know that it's the case that there's no impact on support levels. I, I think you have to take those polls with a grain of salt anyways, but I did see one story that suggested that after he finally started himself acknowledging the seriousness of the campaign over the past few days, that it began to show up in his support numbers. But either way, you and I agree about the most important thing is we've lost time that could never be recaptured, that would have changed where the target was for flattening the curve, could have changed it. And the worst part is Right now, right this red hot second, we're still losing time. We're we're continuing to not take action right. that we could. Where's where's the Manhattan Project level of exigency and, and devotion of national resources? I mean, that, this is this is the point that I think okay. just. I mean, I mean, the point that everyone should agree on is whatever the hell you think the right answer is, it's certainly not do nothing. And you know, leaving it to the states. I mean, some states are better situated than others to handle this. But like, you know, a coordinated federal response is the textbook for a case like this, and we're not seeing it at all. Quarantine and, and travel restrictions, I think that's best dealt with at the state level, but the surging of resources is a national challenge. And the pool, and, and you know, I mean, the, if, if, if Wyoming has, you know, excess supplies, right, facilitating the, the movement of supplies from states that have a glut to states that have high demand, I mean, that's kind of what is, the federal government's for. Is, it, is there some of that? Is there any story that some states actually have excess? Because I hadn't heard that. I don't know. I mean, I, I know that there are plenty of counties that have no ICU beds. And so, you know, that's going to be a huge problem if and when, you know, this crisis spreads into more rural areas of the, the Midwest and west, western parts of the United States. Uh, the, uh, the absence of ICUs in rural areas is, is a larger and longer term problem that I think has always been understood from a regional health perspective as well, it's more efficient to when people in the rural areas have that level of need to medevac them into the, the urban areas. But that, um, assume, that assumes capacity. Right. Yeah, no, we're, we're in some trouble here. Let's uh, move along. What do you want to say about the courts and how courts are responding? We've kind of jumped the gun on that by talking about this Politico story. Um, in the pending legislative intervention, what, if anything, have you seen happening, maybe starting with your own experience with the highest court in the land, you were supposed to be in D.C. this past week, and at the last minute. And now. Right. Um, at the last minute, you were probably heading to the airport when it was finally made clear you didn't need to. So I wasn't, I wasn't at the airport yet. I mean, the, the Supreme Court announced this Monday. I mean, things are moving so fast. It's amazing, like where we were a week ago versus where we are today. But so the Supreme Court announced Monday that it was suspending the entire argument session 
Um, the first time they've done that since October 1918 in the middle of the Spanish flu. Um, they've not yet said anything about what they're going to do to make up those cases. I mean, there are 11 cases that were supposed to be argued starting on Monday, including mine. Um, you know, far more importantly than mine, the two Trump tax subpoena cases were supposed to be argued um, the week after this coming week. There are nine cases on the docket for April, including these two cases about faithless electors that could actually be really important for the presidential election in November. So, you know, I think the, the court has to do something. It's not going to be able to put all 20 of these cases off till the fall. I'm not sure it can put all 20 of these cases, you know, um, to decision without argument because they're not used to proceeding that way. But, you know, we've gotten no guidance yet. And I think what, what that's re revealing is that different courts, Bobby, in the country have different facilities with and views toward the use of technology in the courtroom. So, you know, having like telephonic um, conferences and telephonic arguments, I think is actually not that unusual at all for some trial courts, especially. It's incredibly unusual for others. It's really unusual at the court of appeals level. I mean, I think the, the DC circuit tried to have a couple of arguments telephonically on Friday. Um, and it sounds like there were a whole bunch of glitches. I can't possibly imagine why. I mean, I'm sure you as an associate dean dealing with an aged faculty trying to learn how to teach on Zoom can't relate to elder Article Three judges having similar difficulties. Um, so, you know, there's this hard question about what the right balance is between expedition, that is to say, deciding these cases sooner rather than later, um, you know, deciding them as thoroughly as possible but also recognizing that there's, you know, audio, audio conferencing and video conferencing are not necessarily great substitutes for in-person arguments. I mean, I think that's, that's the problem that every court in the country from the Supreme Court to your local, you know, traffic court um, is struggling with. Would you agree that uh, for oral argument, the ability to read body language, facial expressions, and detect when your, your line of argument is landing flat, flatter, really rough, uh, is critical and therefore that the solution ideally should be something like this should be a zoom video teleconference or it's equivalent something like that it in other words can't you imagine it, especially with a three judge circuit panel you ought to be able to appear on screen both advocates visible there or at least the one who's currently talking visible yeah. and then uh, in gallery view be able to see the judges and how they're reacting I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense for a trial court. I think it makes a lot of sense for a small court of appeals. I think the complexity is, you know, yes, I want to be able to see the faces of all nine justices, but like looking at a screen with nine pictures on it, you know, and trying to argue when they're all sort of doing the same thing, I think it's going to be very disorienting and disjointed. But, you know, the reality is that I think they're not going to, you know, I mean, the Supreme Court is, is a, if we want to talk about at-risk populations, um, right. Yeah, I gotta, gotta keep them. It, it, look, it seems like, of course, it's not ideal. Every one of us who's about to start teaching their courses online understands this is not as good as live. Uh, for, for, I'm sure there's some courses that's different. For most of us, for what we do, where it's highly based on this direct engagement, where we're trying to communicate at all levels with each other, it's better to be live. But for the court to proceed, the Supreme Court in particular seems uh, almost ideally situated to get at least an 80% solution by having these remote arguments and, and with, with visual elements to it. I mean, I think that may be right. I think the, the, what, you know, my, my fear is that part of what's, what's behind the court's hostility to this is not just concerns about how it would work in practice, but also the court's continuing opposition to 
you know, video cameras in the courtroom, yeah. even for archival right. purposes. They just, they just need to get over that. <laughs> they, this is, that's great. That is not important relative to actually being able to have decent arguments and do their job. Anyway, just something else to watch as we go forward is, you know, it's courts are, courts are pretty well set up to do a couple of weeks of emergencies, but like, you know, once we get into the months and months, I mean, this is where that DOJ bill I think becomes interesting because you've got, you know, thousands and forget the folks, forget people who are in prison who have been convicted of crimes. Like you've got, you know, pre-trial detainees, you've got immigration detainees, you've got all of these people in the system on the expectation that they're going to be processed through court pretty quickly. And if that tends to not, if that ends up not being true, all of a sudden, not only do you have a lot more detainees on your hand, but you also have a much higher risk of spread because many of these facilities are going to be overcrowded. Uh, we didn't touch on jury trials and the obstacles there. What a mess. I mean, just the, the, our system is not set up for, you know, months or even multiple weeks of you know, shelter, shelter in place, shelter at home, you know, no non-essential travel kind of orders. Yeah, we're, we're in some trouble. Oh, on that happy note, should we switch to frivolity? Speaking of being in trouble. <laughs> You're super unhappy with me for not being caught up on Westworld. I know, I feel bad. We were not caught up. There was one episode. Right, <laughs> exactly. Not caught up with it. It was so good. Like, that's the problem. Is it? Well, you know, we got, we'll have another show very soon, no doubt. Everything, everything is an emergency episode now. Um, Picard, I, I'm pretty happy. Okay, so if you're not keeping up with Picard, you want this, don't want spoilers. Thanks for listening. Um, but I'm feeling pretty good about how that show's going. How about you? It's going too fast. Like they're rushing over some, some plot points in awkward ways. But what do you think? I, it's you know it's it's been an unevenly paced season, and I really thought a couple of the episodes in the middle were way too like sort of slow. But then the last two episodes, including what I gather is part one of a two part season finale, um, yeah. have been very good. Uh, let's so we haven't seen the last two. I guess we need to go back to uh, the the prior episode was the one that on on the cube on the artifact you had this sort of. Uh, Seven becomes sort of the uh, the local queen Borg, kind of. They go all Borg for a minute. They do go all Borg. You think it's going to get real interesting, and, and they're they're kind of teasing the idea that like, gosh, maybe this, maybe they won't be coming back. They're going to take this step in exigency, and then they're going to reconnect with the, the larger collective, or become just a very scary local Borg thing. But the moment, and this is this goes to the bad pacing of the show, where they're just in such right. a get done. The moment she, uh, that Seven plugs in, her eyes go black, and she speaks with the deep collective voice, we are bored. Um, then the, the Romulans are like, beep, hit the right. easy button, and they eject like all the stasis board out into space. And it's, it's a very cool scene, but it's like, yeah, okay, we solved that problem, pretty much. And then, and then uh, it kind of falls flat when a few minutes later or a few sequences later on the show, well, there still are some Borg working for, for Seven, and they're able they're able to take control of of the bad guys and, and the dead ship thing with it. So it it does though set up this what, what I thought was the, the best season the best line of the season so far, which is um, in this week's episode where Allison Pill right on the bridge of the their, their, the Picard ship and Rios' ship um, yeah. right the the Borg cube comes through the trans warp conduit. And she yeah. says, I thought that ship was dead. 
and then you know uh, Rafi says uh, it's charging weapons and she says so not dead then <laughs> it, was just, it was very well set up um, what do you, how do you like um, how they treated uh, Agnes in her role you know Agnes Girardi commits this murder. And let's just talk more generally about, the, so they, they sort of reveal the, the driver behind all of this, the admonition. And so now across these two episodes, we both very quickly find out what the admonition, that there is this thing, the admonition. We learn about the sort of the origins of this Romulan secret society that hates all the sins and that they think they're actually saving all of, all of organic life by doing the things they're doing. Um, a, well, look, let's set aside that it was all unfolded too fast. Um, there's that. Also, Rafi's sort of like super quick Encyclopedia Brown detective parsing of the, the, the collective evade or whatever, the conclave evade, and like the really rapid unwinding and basal exposition setting forth of how it all works for the crew. All that was real, felt really hand handed, but whatever. They just wanted to get it done. As to the merits of this being the thing driving. Commander O and all the rest. Um, are you buying it? This idea that you could be given a vision of this, what we'll call like the, the, the super sense coming in in Q-like fashion and killing all organic life or something like that. That is that it is so scary that most people who get the vision actually shoot themselves in the forehead and only the strongest will survive. Um, it, I'm not sure how plausible that is. Is it, is it that the substance of the admonition is what's driving them crazy? Or is it that the sort of way it is, it, it is received by a human as opposed to a positronic yeah. brain? I think that's what they mean, right? That it, that it actually is, in some neurological sense, the transmission of the message actually overwhelms an organic brain. And, they, and so you're supposed to think like, oh, okay, so the message comes through cleanly-ish in a terrifying way for the few that are hardy, they happen to have the right biology for it. And then everyone else ends up just goes mad because of it. I think that's, that's the idea. Sense. I don't think they actually conveyed that all that clearly, but it's yeah. what they're trying to do. Yeah, because I mean, it, then it makes sense why you know this, the 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 humans or the Romulans at least who do receive the message end up you know having the same understanding of it as the synths, albeit you know <laughs> with different reactions. Right. Okay. So here's here's the problem I have with it. So imagine that you and I, you know put our hands in the, this, the, the magic table and get the, de the, the big download. Um, and we are hardy enough to survive. So you've got this information and you believe it. It's all entirely persuasive to you. Uh, you're like, oh my God, all of organic life as we know will be destroyed if synthetic life gets to the Terminator tipping points or the, you know, this, uh, the singularity uh, plus. Um, why would your reaction be like, all right, Steve, let's form a secret society to hope in a really complicated way we can get in position to uh, sort of Isaac Asimov foundation, like steer human society in a way that keeps wanting to ban synthetic development. Maybe instead, let's share this knowledge that there is a secret, you know, not one, one number for since that will get all of us killed so that we all know about this. And based on this information being shared with everyone, we will all know to not let it get to that stage, to keep synthetic developments at level one, not let it get to level two. Wouldn't that be a little bit easier, a little more likely to actually work? But C plot. But C plot, wouldn't be a very good show. Um, can we talk about the, 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 the yet another Soong? Yeah, so I love that. Um, 
How many? I mean, the, it's like every time we need another, every time we need Brent Spiner back on the show, we invent some other offspring of Noonien of Noonien Soong. I just love having him back on. You know, it's very, uh, very warm fuzzy to have have Brent Spiner directly in the role. Um, I like the uh, you see the different generations uh, of the synths on the planet. You see the older ones have have more like Data's skin and the and the eyes kind of stand out in certain ways and the more then you compare that to to the most recent versions which look so wholly human uh, yeah it's a little bit you know plot conveniency but they killed maddox so they got to do something they got to have somebody there um playing that role uh it's just i mean it's just it's like i mean the, so i really enjoyed it i will say that the show has basically reverted to one of isaac asimov's you know three plot lines for all science fiction right no it, it perhaps inevitable it's it, the storyline, there's a lot of visual call-outs in the admonition flashbacks, really explicit call-outs to Terminator. You know, not, so not, to, not just Terminator. Terminator, iRobot. Did they actually show a scene from iRobot? I thought, I thought it was a visual. I mean, it sure looked like it was, it was the robot from iRobot. Yeah. So, no, I actually kind of appreciate it. They're like, hey, look, so this plot line is sort of a mashup of everything. Very purposeful elements of a classic original Star Trek Beam down to the planet. The the landscape I think is very soundstage original Star Trek on purpose. Um, a lot of those fun elements. There's the whole moment where the crew kind of walks into a community of people who don't really react that much at first. You know, you, you even get to kick the soccer ball around. That, that's that's very original series. I thought totally. I thought it was great. What they're missing is a red shirt getting killed. Um, but maybe you know maybe we'll get to that. It, they haven't really introduced any stock characters that can be. Uh, wiped out that easily. Well, when your ship has a crew of six. Yeah, that's a problem. What, by the way, can we digress here? Do you like the affectation of the different sort of ethnic characters with their super strong ethnic personalities on the hologram versions of the captain of Rios? I think that it also feels very old Star Trek-y to do that, but I don't love it. Here's the super Irish guy. <laughs> I thought it was cute. I, the problem is, is that I, I think they sort of, they didn't use it enough, right? Like, like Raffi never actually gets enough information out of them. Like, you know, it was just, it was a bit as opposed to like, she divined yeah. something important. She still had to go confront Rios himself in his quarters. Yeah, right. It's felt like you think it's going to go somewhere, then it doesn't. Um, Which really sort of shows it's a bit. Uh, this goes to the whole uh, over uh, the, the hyperspeed approach to plot. But I'm getting whiplash from her personality changes that are not really backed up by plot developments to allow someone to go from being the angry alcoholic and substance abuser who's bitter beyond belief to the happy-go-lucky problem-solving detective who's hugging people. I, I just it doesn't feel true to the character that they initially set up. True. Her redemption arc is like way too fast. Well, like everything else on this show. Yeah, um, they seem to relish getting people to tell tell Picard to shut the F up and you know they're they're playing the, the sort of uh hey you know too much obeisance to him in the past real people would have several times cussed at him and told him to shut up so so I actually I mean, doing that. I mean I really like the scene in this week's episode where the Soong, right the the new Soong, you know walks in and walks walks in after Picard does his whole speech about how he's gonna go to Starfleet. And it's like <laughs> guys <laughs> 
he's tried this, you know, pure, uh, you know, a holier than thou act before, and it's never worked. It's like just have I, I did think it was cool that, and they set it up. They are doing some things well, like some of the edits and cuts are really good. Yeah. And one thing they did well was they set up with one of the synths going up and touching the lines on his face, and be like, oh, this is fascinating. A great line about how these lines, it's not just age, it, it bespeaks something about your experience, which is novel to them. Yeah. I thought that was cool. And then it set up the point where he gives his speech. And as Soon Jr. says, like, whoa, they are so impressed by your craggy features and your experience and your, your rhetoric is so persuasive to them. Let me ruin it for you. Guys, this actually isn't persuasive to other people. They don't listen to him. I thought that was really well done. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Anyway, so I will just say I'm looking forward to the, the season finale on next Thursday. Yeah. Now, do we know, are they, is this going to be a multi-season show or is this it? I don't know if they've renewed it yet. They sort of dropped, you know, they, they've, I think they're setting up the possibility of it, but I'm not sure they've done it yet. Yeah. I'm afraid that what they'll do is they'll set up the transition to the, uh, you know, Rafi becomes captain uh, or, or, or Rios becomes captain in Rafi's, you know, number one and the crew goes on without Jean-Luc. Um, is what they're setting us up for. And maybe that's... Eh. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I better than Watchmen, which sort of set us up for the next season and then is never doing another season. I, I need to watch that too. Fortunately, there's lots of time. Okay, so what will you be doing in the days ahead? Besides, uh, <laughs> we got a Roxy appearance. Oh, you got you to watch the video version for this. Steve's dog is on screen. So I thought I thought I'd bring a little a little a little friend along to sort of. I feel like we're gonna have a Men in Black moment where the dogs are talking to us. Uh, are you are you are you a talking dog? Are you a talking pug from Men in Black? <laughs> That's really a cute dog. <laughs> Roxy's pretty cute. Um, so sorry, you were asking me a question as I was getting Which, my. What are you gonna be doing? Yeah. Well, you know, we have these two kids who you know. Mm-hmm. I I actually think I mean it's it's not just that this is a very different experience even for folks who are healthy and have, you know, stable jobs, which, you know, we're so much luckier than so many other people. Yeah. I still think it's a radically different experience if you've got young kids versus slightly older kids, because- Oh, no question. Like the difference between your situation and mine is really clear. Um, Cause like Sydney needs constant something. So yeah. we're, we're gonna spend the afternoon coming up with activities for them, which might be complicated by the fact that it's raining um, or it's about to rain. Um, and then, you know, it's just one day to talk. <laughs> is that Roxy? That was Roxy. That was, that was Roxy. That was a pug noise. <laughs> Roxy, can you, can you wave to everyone on the podcast? Hi. Oh, this, is this is the best. <laughs> this is the podcast you needed. Um, so we have no idea if this audio is going to work, everybody, but, you know, we'll try. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we'll try to find a time to record Bobby sometime next week, I gather. No doubt. And if we get... You know, I think we should be open to the idea that if there are unfolding uh, pandemic-related events that have a legal angle, um, we can do short bits. Bits is make this sound like we're going to tap dance. Um, we'll do short hits on those and uh, maybe have an uneven schedule going forward. Um, and a reminder that, you know, 8.30 Monday night, Eastern time, 7.30 Central. Uh, you, can, you can do the, the live, live Q&A thing. Oop. Zoom um, bomb them. And Zoom Karen's calling them. me. All right. Um, so we're about to um, sign off um, and we'll, you know, we'll talk to you soon. Stay safe out there. Adios. Wash your hands. Um, all right. I'm going to stop the recording in three, two, one.